Uh, welcome to all of you. I'm Ted Ruger, the Dean of the Law School. It's my great pleasure uh, to, to welcome our distinguished uh, speaker today, Ambassador Kamau. Um, the Ambassador uh, has, uh, has as, as you know from the slightly delayed start time of, of this event, the Ambassador has graced us with his presence uh, coming from uh, New York uh, and braving uh, Philadelphia traffic in rush hour on the day of the of transit strike. So we're even more, I think, grateful um, that you've made the trip, Ambassador. Um, this is uh, an event uh, in the life of, of Penn Law School that uh, builds on our, our philosophy that uh, the law and, and learning uh, that we do here in this building is connected uh, throughout the world to uh, important issues uh, of human rights, of, of climate change, of uh, um, uh, civil and political discourse, and it fits with, uh, with uh, a, a general series that we've, we've been having here where we bring uh, the world's leaders on these issues to address us, um, and this is very much in that vein. It also fits with our philosophy of partnering with uh, other institutions across this great university, and here I do want to acknowledge and thank uh, the Center for Africana Studies, uh, the Kleinman Center for Energy Policy, and the School of Social Policy and Practice, uh, our partners in hosting uh, Ambassador Kamau. Um, I now want to turn it over uh, with thanks to our Associate Dean uh, for International Affairs, Rangita De Silva de Alwis, who um, is a great uh, vision behind our international uh, offerings here and uh, uh, has been instrumental in bringing the Ambassador uh, to us today. And she will introduce, uh, more, more properly introduce our guest as well as the students um, who are involved and uh, help kick off this uh, event. Thank you. Oh, and I, I did neglect to do one more thing in my dean's role. Ambassador, we want to give you this small framed um, uh, uh, document uh, just in thanks from Penn Law and, and something you can take, take back to in the traffic with you, but we very much uh, appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dean Ruger. Good evening, Ambassador and the Penn community. As the token that we gave to the Ambassador reads, the University of Pennsylvania Law School recognizes, Ambassador, your extraordinary commitment to the negotiation and the adoption of the 17 Sustainable Development Goals and bringing the Committee of Nations together on a historic global agenda. Thank you on behalf of Penn Law. Penn Law today rededicates our own commitment to the Sustainable Development Goals. This event is the apotheosis of several events that Penn Law has engaged in uh, advance in the SDGs, especially Goal 5 on gender equality that is so critical to you, Ambassador, throughout the year 2015. And Penn has partnered with UN Women and UNESCO in hosting milestone events it, both in New York as well as in Paris on the role of law schools and the law in advancing the Sustainable Development Goals and gender equality. In terms of introducing the ambassador, I want to share the impact of his distinguished leadership in three key areas. Heads of state have called the sweep and breadth of the 17 SDG goals nothing short of a diplomatic miracle. And you, Ambassador, you helped to lead this diplomatic feat. But most often, these diplomatic feats languish in the realm of hortatory promises and rhetoric. 
But one year on, the SDGs agreed on by 193 nations are already leading transformations, and mostly because of your vision, Ambassador, in building accountability processes. The SDGs have rewritten the rules of global engagement, and there's a stream of presidential decrees, national action plans, business policies and budgets that keep growing from Sweden to Colombia. But you, Ambassador, will be the first to note that much more needs to be done, and that is why we are here today. The second pillar of your leadership is as an environmental diplomat. The Secretary General recently appointed you and President Mary Robinson, who will be here with us at Penn Law in March, as his special envoys on climate and El Nino. And he commended you on your extraordinary service and magnetic leadership. Ambassador Kamal, you have often said that your love for the environment is rooted in your own childhood, where you grew up on a farm with animals, wildlife, forests, and rivers that were so part of your own daily life. And as the Paris Agreement comes into force on November 4th, it is indeed an auspicious time for us here at Penn Law to host you and mark the Paris Accord. And most of all, it is a time to discuss ways in which to actualize the commitments of the Paris Agreement. It is but, however, a time of global crisis. Some 40 million children and families in countries across southern Africa remain in the grip of an intense drought, induced by one of the strongest El Nino occurrences on record. You were just in Mozambique and Botswana, where lack of water has wiped out crops and killed livestock, with communities eating seeds and roots to survive and children dropping out of school to forage for food. Our thoughts, too, are with you as well as your own home country, Kenya, which is in the throes of a drought. The third cross-cutting pillar of your leadership is as chairman of the UN Peace Building Commission. And exactly two months ago, under your leadership, the UN Peacebuilding Commission became the first intergovernment UN body to adopt a historic gender strategic plan to advance the advancement of women in peacebuilding. You and your colleague, Ambassador Samantha Powers, often say that when women are at the table, there's a 20% higher chance that peace lasts for more than two years. In Sri Lanka, my own country of birth, you have helped to resettle women heads of household back in their lands in the north. Mr. Ambassador, we are inspired by your dedication to solving humanity's most intractable challenges. You have often called the SDGs your heartbeat. Please know that now our hearts beat with you. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Um, it's really nice to be here. So thank you very, very much for this invitation. And thank you much for that uh, beautiful plaque. I'm glad you gave it to me before I spoke, because I'm not so sure that uh, you would give it to me after. Uh, for the simple reason that normally I, I, don't, have, I don't prepare speeches. I, I prefer to, to speak from my, 
from my, uh, from my, just from my thoughts. And that's what I intended to do this time. Except that this time, um, I come uh, a little bit fatigued. So if my mind drifts off a little bit, uh, don't, don't panic. It's just, uh, it's just the travel that I had yesterday. I arrived from a two-week trip uh, through five countries uh, looking at the situation of peace and security and uh, the situation of drought and the drought situation in Eastern Southern Africa. And uh, after the 14-hour trip uh, into New York, I arrived to find that there was another uh, bilateral crisis. Uh, I am, after all, my day job is that of an ambassador for Kenya to the United Nations. So I found an issue that needed to be taken, so I was up until very late last night trying to take care of that. So today has been a little bit of a difficult day. Um, and so if I'm not my usual uh, self, you won't notice because you don't know me. Uh, but uh, I'm sure Susan will be uh, uh, very disappointed. So I'll try and not, not disappoint her too much. First of all, uh, I love speaking to students uh, and their professors. Um, because it's the one place where I don't have to worry too much that uh, I'm going to say something that will ruffle the feathers of some uh, political, uh, terribly dogmatic individual. Now, I know we don't have time, so let me just confirm how much time I have. Uh, how much time do I have? You have 30 minutes, and followed by two I never get 30 minutes. <laughs> So that's incredible. I'll try and make it shorter. Um, I want you to imagine um, a situation where uh, you are trying to put together a unified theory of development. Now I'm talking to uh, students at a rather reputable university. So. I imagine that sometimes you come across these ideas where you have the general theory of something or a unified theory of something, uh, where you're trying to put together ideas that make everything make sense. Everybody likes to ask me, those who've watched me do what I do, um, why was I so interested in the development, sustainable development goals? What was my driving factor? Apart from the fact that I have been a development practitioner all my life, having worked for UNICEF uh, and have, you know, since I was uh, 25 years old, uh, United Nations Development Program, uh, United Nations Environment Program, and so on and so forth. Um, my, 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 biggest, my biggest issue was always that there must be something that, puts, that pulls all these ideas together, something that makes sense around what it is that we need to do to bring development to the world. Now, the more I traveled and the more I have been alive, I have, I have seen that there are some countries that just seem to get it right. And then there are some countries that are constantly struggling and cannot seem to get it right. And there are some countries that get it right for a particular period of time, and then over time, they seem to lose their mojo and somehow forget how to do development, and they recede. 
And anybody who deals in the work of development recognizes that, yes, there are some fundamental things, I don't want to call them principles, but there are some fundamental deliverables, if you will, that make development work. So, as we were working on the Millennium Development Goals, which I'm sure you all know about, we came to realize very soon, and I happened to be involved, uh, I was in my early 30s then, on the issue of the Millennium Development Goals, purely on a, as an advisor, on an advisory role. We thought that by then that we were really looking to deal with the most difficult, the most pernicious negative fallouts of development, poverty, ill health, hunger, uh, lack of water, and, and that's what we were very, very excited about in the 80s and 90s. And we tended to focus on that because we, the world as we saw it then was consumed by all these negatives, particularly the developing world. But as we went through the 80s and 90s, we saw an acceleration of development in some countries, some spectacularly so, uh, some in the Middle East, China, Brazil, and others. And we began to realize that, yes, while we were dealing with the MDGs, we tended to be caught up in the symptomatic aspects of development, not the fundamental drivers of development. So by the time we got done with the MDGs in 2014, because they had a 15-year uh, a, a a, a time frame, we began to realize that, you know, uh, we, are, we are at the end of the period that we've given us ourselves to implement the MDGs. But even though we had had great success in some ways, we still fell short in some very fundamental ways. So we needed to do something different. And the world leaders were coming together and saying, we need to do something different that will help deliver on, the, uh, on development in a much more accelerated way, in a much more transformative way. Meanwhile, because of the progress of certain develop, uh, developing countries, such as China, as I said, we also realized that there were certain things that were happening that were driving development that weren't captured by the Millennium Development Goal strategy. So by the time we got to Rio to, at the Earth Summit, and by the, we also came to realize that there were issues that were global that had to do with climate, that had to do with biodiversity, that had to do with, if you want, industrialization and the fallout of industrialization that were beginning to tell us that the MDGs were not all that we needed to be looking at and to be doing in order to achieve the full development that we wish to achieve. Moreover, in the developed world, we were seeing a situation where countries which were doing wonderfully were beginning to peter out. Economies were slowing down, the negatives of the economic models were beginning to have to be really burdensome, including climate, greenhouse gases issues, and climate change, and the negatives that come with that. Uh, we were beginning to see these new economies that were charging ahead were creating an impossible proposition for the world, basically around climate, basically around the fact that there was only, that, that the greenhouse gases, e e uh, circumstances around development 
were going to make it impossible for us to have the same development model that had gotten Europe and North America to where they were. If we were to use the same development model for China, for the rest of the world with their billions of people, we would, have a t we would destroy our world as we know it. Not just in climate terms, but in biodiversity terms as well. So something different had to be done. We had to approach the way in which we were engaging in the development challenge differently. As it, as it happened, there was a very strong sense after the, after the Rio conference, which took place in, in Rio de Janeiro, that's the Earth Summit, uh, that we needed to consider the possibility that maybe if we could get the world to sit at the same table agree on the same deliverables for development, agree that we, had, we were faced with the same challenges around which we must deliver on development, that maybe we could save ourselves from the worst aspects and the most negative aspects of the development model that we had been using in the 20th century. This was not what we got involved in at the time. This was just what we were thinking about in the back of our minds. In the context of our work, all we were thinking about was what are going to be the successor goals for the Millennium Development Goals? That's all. And the term Sustainable Development Goals was actually coined by uh, Colombia and Guatemala because they were the countries that seemed to be a little bit ahead of the curve on thinking of, as to what the success, successor goals might be. But everybody was mortified at the prospects of how you were going to get 193 odd countries to sit around the table and negotiate and agree on a common set of goals. Moreover, we were now beginning to say after the Rio conference that we wanted a universal set of goals. The Millennium Development Goals were not universal. They were mainly goals for developing countries. And there were mainly goals that dealt with the negative, the most negative and the most pernicious uh, aspects of development, disease, hunger, illiteracy, and so forth. But now, we had set ourselves a new challenge. How are we going to negotiate this? How are we going to convince 193 countries to agree on a universal set of goals that each country would be accountable for? Remember that in the room we have Eastern Europe, we have Russia, we have China, we have the African countries, we have the small island countries, we have landlocked countries, we have North America, the United States, Canada, we have Australia. Every one of these countries sees the world from a very different prism and sees the challenge of development from a very different prism. It is almost impossible to imagine, if you will, the United States having a compatible and agreeable conversation around development with Russia. Or, for that matter, with China. Because the fundamental politics that drive their development, the fundamental politics that drive their debate about what is desirable to be achieved by society was different. And yet, that was the challenge that we were set. So, in its wisdom, the General Assembly 
of the United Nations decided that they would set up what they called an open working group. This is common terminology in the UN. And it only means that everybody is allowed to come to the party and debate. That's what an open working group is. And then they select two chairs from uh, a developed country and another one from a developing country and decide you two are going to be responsible for the management of this process to get us all to agree on a common strategy. And so we did. And so we set off on the journey to do so. It took us just shy of three years to get the job done. I don't have to tell you, but I think you can imagine just how complex that was. The easiest way to go about it, and I'm going to have to look up my notes this time. Normally, I just reel it off, but my brain isn't ticking along as nicely as I like it to. We set up a process where we had a broad consultative arrangement. We brought in academics, thinkers, theoreticians, uh, and for a good year, we just exchanged ideas. What is the future that we want, we asked ourselves. What are the biggest challenges that we are finding that are blocks to achieving the future that we want? How are we going to get everybody there all at the same time in an agreed period of time? The whole debate and that whole expose that came from all these academics and intellectuals and thinkers, uh, young people, uh, uh, indigenous peoples, all kinds of people came to speak to us. And we try and took all of that in. And then we organized all that information into, fo into uh, uh, focus areas, mainly trying to get everybody to sort of agree that indeed, I may be from Russia or China or Kenya or Colombia or Sri Lanka, I may be from anywhere in the world, but we can agree that these are important. For example, we need to get a handle on climate change. You'd be surprised. At the time, three, four years ago, it was very difficult to get that consensus because the Delianists were still very, very influential. There were countries, not individuals, that believed that climate change was not real and that believed that the correlation between their industrial behavior, their consumption and production habits, consumption and production habits of each individual person was not correlated to climate change. And as long as you had countries and individuals who believe that, how are you going to get them to agree that greenhouse gases were a problem, a problem that required individual countries to change their cons consumption and production habits? How are you going to get them to agree on, on changing the investment in their technological work in order to ensure that indeed they, they, they have an impact on how they produce on how their industries are managed. That was just one, one little area. Maybe somewhere between goal seven and goal, and goal 13. That's where it ended up landing. But the debate originally was, why would a country like Saudi Arabia, which relies primarily on oil production, 
even contemplate that we're, not gonna, uh, we're going to have a future which isn't based on oil production. Why would they even contemplate that as an agreeable way of proceeding? Why would countries in Africa even contemplate that they would have a future where you are not going to industrialize because, I'm sorry, with the current technology, if you did industrialize, the world would choke on greenhouse gases. So maybe it's a better idea you don't industrialize, the rest of us remain industrialized and we'll provide for you. Well, no country was going to accept that. I'm only giving you a little taste of the kind of debate that was beginning to unfold as we tried to put the goals together. Why would you have a country that does not allow women to drive or a country that does not allow women to vote or to participate fully in their society suddenly accept that you know what, we are sitting in a room somewhere in New York and we're going to agree that women have equality. Totally alien concept <laughs> when it comes to their society and how women are to be involved. Why would you have countries agree that inequality is important? Some countries don't see inequality as a difficult issue. They don't. They have structures in their system that create inequality, sustain inequality, and they don't have a debate at a political and social level. So these issues remain sub submerged and suppressed. Same thing for women. Fast forward, trying to put all this together, trying to get people to agree on what were the fundamental problems that were facing the world and facing development, and how are we going to overcome poverty, which was already being seen as a destabilizing factor in our world? How are we going to handle the industrialization, and yet we needed countries to industrialize, especially the poorer countries, but we wanted them to industrialize differently? All of that finally culminated in us agreeing on the 17 goals, three years later. That's a dramatization for you, but the point I was trying to make is that the biggest challenge was to get people to agree that we had a common destiny, that our common individual actions were contributing either negatively or positively to a common destiny, and that we had to act in unison together to get to where we wanted to get to as one world, as one people. That we actually got there is something of a little miracle, and we can discuss that later. I'll change gears a little bit and speak to my role as the Special Envoy. At the end of this work, uh, at the end when we did adopt the Sustainable Development Goals, and by the way, we then packaged it into a global agenda for sustainable development, an agenda that, is tr that, that sort of gives the, uh, the division of labor as to how we're going to deliver on these goals, because there's no point of having goals if you don't agree on, on the how of delivering of those goals. So we put together a financing structure, we put together targets, 
and indicators to help us stay on track so that we can monitor each other. We put together a global system, a uh, high-level political uh, forum that allows us every year to meet together and ask every country to report on how it's attaining these goals and how it's making progress to these goals. All that was put together in the context of the 2030 agenda. But after all that was done, the Secretary General then uh, turned to me and asked if I would uh, pick up on something that was proving extremely troublesome uh, to many countries at the beginning of, uh, of this year. As many of you know, we had the uh, El Nino uh, phenomena out in the Pacific, and it was clear that that was going to have its usual climatic impacts around the world. I trust that you have a sense of what uh, those uh, weather phenomena, that weather phenomena called El Nino is. But for some parts of the world, it means a hell of a lot more rain. And for other parts of the world, it means droughts. And uh, when La, La Nina kicks in, it just reverses. Sometimes with equal intensity, sometimes with less. But what we've noticed now is that because of climate change, because of the ferociousness with which our climate seems to be responding to all the stimuli that we're pushing out into the atmosphere, that these weather events are becoming more frequent and more violent. So whilst we may have had a category five or category four hurricane once in 20 years or once in 15 years, now we are seeing them almost once every year. Winston, uh, Matthew, the last two we've had this year, uh, Winston, I think, went through the Pacific, wiped out Fiji, uh, and Wanawatu, and a few other islands. Uh, Hurricane Matthew, you see what it did to Haiti, almost 1,000 dead, uh, 40 dead in the U.S. alone. Uh, things aren't going too well in our little world because whether we like it or not, our weather is bubbling up. We've put too many greenhouse gases up there and it's beginning to boil over. And even if we stopped every car today and shut down every factory today, we would still have 50 to 70 years of negative weather events that are off the normal trajectory, off the normal norm. So the new norm has become these weather events. So I was asked to, with Mary Robinson, that we need to go around the world to do a couple of things. The first was to go to countries that are being affected by these weather events and raise awareness that indeed these are, this is the new norm, that countries are going to have to invest differently in resilient uh, responses uh, to the challenges that they'll face, both in infrastructure and uh, whether it is in food production, whether it is in the kinds of seeds they use, whether it is um, in, in, in how they respond generally to what may have been for them a one in five, 10, 15 year event, now is gonna become much more regular and how this is going to disrupt economies and disrupt societies. We have seen countries that have 
had such a series of these weather events, Mozambique being one of them, where they go from cyclones to floods to droughts, almost back to back. And you can imagine what this does to, to, to the communities. You can imagine what that does to a society. If, if every season here in, in Philadelphia, you had a major weather event that destroyed infrastructure and uprooted people's livelihoods. It would make life almost unsustainable because your, your wealth keeps getting destroyed as you build it. And then at the same time, try and raise awareness in the world that indeed we needed to help those countries to get over the hump because they're going to require much more support to get where they need to get to. So these are the two primary things that we have been doing as we've been going around the world. The other uh, area that I have been dealing with that was introduced uh, is in my role as the United Nations uh, Peace Building Chair. Now you may wonder why I keep doing all these things and I'm not so sure why myself, but I, I keep ended up uh, given these responsibilities. The peace building one actually fell on Kenya's lap and because I was ambassador, I had to pick it up. Uh, it, was, it was Africa's turn and then Kenya was asked to pick up that responsibility. Goal 16, among many other goals, uh, speak to issues of peace. We are not going to get where we want to get to if countries keep slipping back into wars and civil strife. We have to come up with a sustainable way of maintaining and sustaining peace in our world. Now in the United States, you've had a good run a uh, couple hundred years uh, since your last little civil war. Um, but there are some countries that have not been able to sustain peace. And we need to mobilize the world, both rich and poor countries, those in peace and those outside of peace, to create these opportunities to sustain peace. And what we've been working on in the last year, while I've been chair, is to put in place certain principles. I, as you know, I, I happen to like that. Certain ways of doing business for all of us. And what we've agreed is that one, we shall sustain peace. Now that sounds like self-evidently true, but it isn't always the case. You'd be surprised how many countries don't think that sustaining peace is a terribly important thing. But yes, we as an international community must seek that in all our engagements with countries, we must sustain peace. Two, that we must protect the primacy of politics, which means that we must never resort to arms, fighting, to uh, anything that steps outside the realm of politics in resolving issues. Why? Because we have seen, whether it's in Afghanistan, whether it's in Iraq, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Libya, that every time we leave the negotiation table and think maybe we can fight this out and sort it out, the result is that things actually get worse. So the primacy of politics becomes fundamental, even when things are going badly. And thirdly, that we must recognize the fundamental importance of youth and women in maintaining peace in our world. Why? Because the main perpetrators speaking to a room full of young people, so 
but the main perpetrators of violence are young people. You don't normally hear if it's terrorism, you don't normally hear people over 35 or 40 blowing themselves up. If it is people who are actually carrying the guns and doing the fighting, it tends to be young people. So what do we need to do? We need to find young people, give them education, give them jobs, gainful employment, so that they do not feel that they have to resort to socially disruptive things. So youth is an important thing. Youth are also the future. So if we don't get youth right, if we don't get the issues of young people right, we will not be able to sustain peace in our societies, period. And lastly, women. Who are the main victims of, of countries that fall into, into unpeace? It's women. Who are the main victims when you have armies marching through uh, countries? It's women. As a consequence, we need to understand that we need to be able to protect women at all times in the context of violent environments, whether we're in Syria, Afghanistan, my own country, Kenya, here in the United States. We need to make sure we have the right institutions to deliver for women. And we must also recognize that, ha that, that in our experience and in everything that we've seen, when women are involved in the building of peace, peace becomes deeper, more sustained, and more respected by all, men, women, young and old. So involving women in the delivery of peace is fundamentally important. These are the three or four principles that we have been trying to en ingrain as ways of doing business for the international community in the context of peace building in our world moving forward. So that's the third area that I was asked to speak about and that's what I'll, speak, uh, I'll say about it now, uh, for now. I've, sp I've already spent about 25 minutes, so I'll stop now. But I will say this. The President of the General Assembly likes to say that this is the master plan for guaranteeing the future of the world as we know it. I always say, I'm always afraid when people talk about master plans because it sounds uh, a little draconian, but if we don't all pull in the same direction, all countries, whether it, whether it means in climate, in issues of protecting our oceans and life on our oceans, whether it means in forests and forests and, 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 and the biodiversity in our world, whether it means peace, if we don't pick up the issues of inequality and making sure that minorities are in, uh, brought on board and kept front and center of the challenges, whether it's indigenous people or other minorities, if we don't engage in the kind of effort that brings decent work so that young people can be gainfully employed and employed to be able to be productive and we have economic growth so that people can see a better future, if we don't have clean and affordable energy for all, we can forget about fighting poverty, about fighting hunger, about having better health in our world, about having better education, about having better gender inequality, about having clean water and sanitation for everybody. We can forget it. And if we don't do it all together, 
there are no guarantees that those of us who are living comfortably right now will be able to continue to do so. Because unfortunately for us, we live in an interconnected world. And when people are left behind, whether it's countries or individuals, they will come to get their fair share. Whether it is through terrorism, through crime, or through other disruptive ways. So reaching out to everybody, getting everybody on board and recognizing that we have common goals that we can work with, that we can get everybody to agree on, which we finally have, doing that might be the best promise for the future that we want. So I'll stop there and I'll take questions if there are any. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador, for that impassioned call to action. Uh, you just said, if you do not get the issues of youth right, we will not have sustainable peace nor development. And that is why, because we know that the sustainable development goals find their deepest expression in the issues of youth, and because you engage youth leaders from the North and the Global South in developing and envisioning the new global agenda, today we have three of Penn Law's global leaders here who will act as your interlocutors, who will challenge you with questions as well as moderate the discussion with you. So I'm going to ask our student leaders to very briefly introduce themselves and ask the first question. Good evening, Ambassador Kamau. It's my pleasure to be here with you this evening and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your time with us. Um, I'm Patricia Stottlemyre. I'm a third year law student here at Penn and I'm the editor of the Penn Law Global Affairs blog. I'm gonna begin by asking you about gender. Uh, goal five addresses gender equality and empowerment. In particular, how do you think we can best address gender-based stereotypes and social norms and practices in order to ensure that changes in laws and policies have meaningful impacts? Yeah, I better do it because I'm too tired to retain too much today. Um, so I'll take it as they come. Um, one of the most difficult things uh, that we've had to face in the area of development has been the issue of gender. It is incredibly intractable to resolve. Um, those of us who've had very powerful women in our lives have a very hard time understanding this uh, because we had a mother who I don't know, she seemed to run the shop, so I don't know. You don't, you don't see why this isn't the norm. But the reality is that um, this issue of gender is, is so embedded uh, in our cultures, in our politics, in our societies, in our politics, um, that it is sadly uh, hugely difficult to resolve. But having said that, what we've seen in the last uh, 30, 40 years, sounds like a long time, it isn't. Uh, what we've seen is that in societies that take it up as a core issue and that build institutions to drive, that's why I said a little earlier, it's it, the institutions to drive these issues, whether it is educational institutions, civic institutions, political institutions, economic institutions, uh, whether it is finding technologies that bring women to the mainstream, 
whether it is uh, banking arrangements, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Those countries that do that enjoy such a huge dividend that they just charge ahead. So I think the penny is beginning to drop, if it hasn't, for many, many countries that you cannot expect just to have men delivering and you cannot expect just to have women cut out of the mainstream and expect societies to come into, into their own and meet their maximum opportunities. You just cannot. And thank goodness that the world has become a competitive place. Globalization for all its ills, and my goodness it has many, has, has done one truly important thing, is that it has made the world a competitive place. And it's made everybody recognize that you do have to use all your resources that are available to you if you're going to succeed. And it's only those retrograde societies and countries who want to cut off, cut themselves off from the rest of the world that have any chance of being able to be uh, have it's only those that want to cut themselves off that truly are unable to see the value of mainstreaming gender uh, among many, many other things that need to be, to be done differently. So I don't know whether I answered your question, but it's about institutions, it's about inclusiveness, it's about the politics, the economics, it's, it's about everything that makes sure that uh, the issues of gender are sorted out early on. Good evening, Ambassador, and echoing everyone's sentiments, thank you again for joining us. Uh, my name is Leo Park. Uh, I'm a third-year law student here and currently the executive editor on the uh, Journal of International Law. And I was hoping to ask you about uh, the comments you made about El Nino and the current situation happening there. Um, it, it seems to be an interesting situation because it straddles this middle ground between both being a climate issue and a humanitarian issue. And you mentioned both um, trying to build states' uh, resilience to climate change and as well as trying to mobilize support. So I'm curious, in your experience, have you seen different levels of, or different responses, or different levels of success in, in mobilizing support, depending on how you frame it, either as a humanitarian issue or as a climate issue? Hmm. Um, you know, it's a good question. Um, if it's a slow onset emergency, like drought, which comes, which literally creeps on you, it's very, very difficult to get people to respond to it until such a time as you have dead bodies of animals or human beings. Slow-set emergencies are very difficult to mobilize for as humanitarian emergencies until it's literally too late. Droughts are the worst. Cyclones, hurricanes, floods, you know, Sorry, they're all terrible, but droughts are the worst. Why? Because they decimate the individuals completely. At the end of a drought cycle, I was in Mozambique in one community. Uh, they hadn't seen enough rain to grow anything for uh, two, uh, three years, just shy of three years. That's four seasons of crops. The land is dry, there's nothing, all right? They've sold their animals, all right? Some have died. Their crops have been wiped out. Their kids have been pulled out of school. 
they've literally sold everything. So it's like an individual getting their bank account wiped out, their income source, their job taken away, and their kids pulled out of school, and so on and so forth. So at the end of the, t by the time you're really beginning to, to declare a drought emergency, the person is devastated. The community is devastated. When you have a hurricane, it's a terrible thing, but it's over in a few hours. You can literally, your money's still in the bank. You can probably find your animals wherever it is they've been, you know, rushed off to. And you can sort of rebuild and regroup rather quickly. Same thing with a flood or a cyclone or whatever. So, um, but to answer your question, it, it, people respond viscerally to dramatic events, especially if they're televised. And they will come running because it's a hurricane. Um, it's a little bit more difficult to do that with, with, with uh, events that are difficult to dramatize, especially when you want to be preventative. Because you have to be preventive, you know, I mean, you can't always wait till people are dying, <laughs> until their animals are wiped out. So, you know, you come and tell people, as we were just now, hey, watch out, 2017 is going to be a pretty bad year for many, many of those countries. And we're telling them that. But to, but to convince the international community to, you know, cough up $5.7 billion, which is what we were looking for for a few countries, eh, you know, I saw the pictures, they looked okay, you know. So what's the problem? It's a little bit more difficult. Good evening, Ambassador. Uh, it's a privilege to be here. And I wanted to pivot slightly to uh, the concept of peace building. Uh, the countries that are on the Peace Building Commission's agenda are all from the African continent. And I wanted to know what role should the African Union play in delivering a sustaining peace on the continent? Thank you. Actually, the African Union is, um, is big on sustaining peace. Uh, in fact, it's, uh, I was just there last week, week before, um, and I was just congratulating them because the United Nations is just now catching up with the African Union. And I was saying, you know, many times the African Union was accused of being complacent with, with, with situations of violence, with uh, with uh, tolerance uh, to dictators and or bad governance. And, they, and, the, and, and, the, and the leaders in the African Union would say, well, you know, the alternative is horrible. You know, it's all very well to get rid of Gaddafi, but the alternative is horrible. You can get rid of Saddam and, uh, you know, but the alternative is horrible. And so they go down the list and they say, we have to convince these people to leave power. We have to find different mechanisms that force people out of power, but that do not create a power vacuum. So we're going to have to get smarter as to how we get rid of bad leaders. We cannot do it in ways in which we create huge power vacuums that spiral out of control. The entire West Africa is engulfed in a huge terrorist network the Boko Harams and others that have been hugely disruptive. Nigeria, 100 million, 100 plus, 100 what, 140 million people now, is virtually on its knees because of some of these issues. And it's all because we got rid of Gaddafi. 
and all those guns and his arms and the power vacuum and the political vacuum that we created there was, was sucked up all his Al-Qaeda networks and have made the whole West Africa virtually ungovernable. So we need to be smarter, we need to be cleverer. The African Union has tried. It's a limited organization by the fact that it's an organization mainly of not very rich countries. And that comes up as a price, uh, uh, comes at a price. Thank you so much, Ambassador. I think we have time to take some questions from the audience. Uh, if you would just wait for me to bring the microphone to you, I'd appreciate it. Hi, I'm Jennifer Prarruger. I'm Associate Dean for Global Studies at Social Policy and Practice. Delighted to be uh, co-sponsoring this event, and, and thank you so much for your comments. Um, I wanted to ask you about reducing inequalities, and especially um, the thought of uh, the Sustainable Development Goals, as you mentioned, um, being applicable to all countries and, and all societies, even wealthy ones. Correct. Uh, like my own, um, where inequalities are uh, rampant and growing. Um, and even some of the emerging countries, uh, like Brazil, where uh, inequalities are, are growing. So how do the sustainable development goals um, differently reach um, these uh, better off countries, especially with you know major uh, concerns of inequalities? For example, I visited the Pine Ridge Reservation this summer. Uh, which is uh, a reservation in uh, South Dakota. And it's one of the poorest places in the Western Hemisphere right here in America. Yeah. So how can this kind of structure uh, address those kinds of issues? It's a very good question. Um, first of all, and by the way, I love Q&A, so uh, please ask, don't, don't be shy out there. Um, first of all, The way in which we've designed the sustainable development goals, the targets and the indicators, is that they're universally applicable. Or applicable. I pronounce that as a Kenyan. So, because they're universally uh, applicable, um, every country has to take them and apply them to their situation. So, please, somebody needs to pull up the targets and the goals, and you'll see that it doesn't matter whether you're Kenya, Brazil, United States, Canada, any country in the world, those goals are applicable to you, and you have to figure out how you attain those goals. So for example, if we say we want you to have the number of people living in poverty, well, for China, that's half a billion people, maybe. For Kenya, it's 20 million people. For the United States, there's a number that is proportionate to that. Uh, sometimes we use uh, coefficients instead of uh, absolute numbers, and that is also applicable. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how we do it. But we're also talking about inequality within countries and between countries. Mm -hmm. And inequality between countries is about making sure that we don't leave some countries too far behind. Mm -hmm. If you look at the countries that sponsor terrorism in the world, with probably exception of one major one, uh, they're poor countries. 
where there's a lot of desperation. And even that rich country that, is a, that was, maybe it's not so much now, a great sponsor of terrorism in the world, uh, it was because individuals felt marginalized. And they, and they took it upon themselves to turn that into a political uh, struggle. Hi, and uh, my name's Dan Wagner from the Graduate School of Education and head of the International Education Program there. And I was um, very impressed by your overview. I really appreciate it. I hadn't heard the, the background and politics of this done so cleanly and con clearly. Um, my, I have maybe two related questions. One is, what do you think a university like the University of Pennsylvania can do to help? What's the role of academia mm -hmm. in supporting the SDGs? And second, you did refer to education at one point, um, more than one point, but the youth and education link. And since I'm involved in, the, in a school of education, I'm wondering if you have any special thoughts about what education people should be thinking about in the context of uh, your presentation and the SDGs. Thanks. Thank you, thank you. I'm a graduate of a school of education. Harvard. Graduates, yeah. <laughs> really silly institution, I agree. Anyway, um, academia. If the president of the General Assembly was here, he would, be, he, he would take over and uh, do the spiel himself. Uh, the bottom line is this. We're not going to get this done without academia without scientists, without thinkers, without philosophers, without everybody on board. I'm sorry, it's not gonna happen. One of the things that we're really trying to do, and, we, and Australia, by the way, has decided to make uh, the SDGs, I forget the way they put it, uh, but it, it, it's something to the effect that they're going to make it as a core deliverable for their uh, uh, academic uh, institutions across the board. Why? Because this is applicable to everything. Imagine uh, mathematics, if you want. Uh, there are ways in which this can speak to it. Uh, economics, uh, uh, I don't know, it, it, the sciences. You know, people like to walk away and, and say, oh no, this is just social science and actually this is just a, a branch of development economics or it's just a branch of international relations. No, it's not. Uh, it's highly applicable if you look at the indicators, if you look at the targets, if you look at the aspirational and ambition aspects of this, it's hugely applicable to everything that academia does. So, uh, whether it's in law, law 16, the, the law, the, the law around the enforcement of many of the treaties uh, that are subsumed within these goals and targets, global treaties, from WTO kind all the way to UNCLOS that deals with oceans and seas. It's hugely applicable to everything in academia. School of uh, 
the thing I would really push the schools of education to do is on the curriculum side, particularly for primary and secondary schools, particularly. Because if we can get people, young people, to imbue this uh, uh, philosophical mindset that everything that has to do with protecting our earth is important and get kids to grow up understanding that how they consume and how things are produced for them to consume is, is crucially important to the balance of maintaining peace and security, maintaining uh, a world that is balanced in, in its ecology, in its climate, in its biodiversity. If kids can understand this from the get-go, you will have a, a hell of a lot more less work to do with them when they become politicians, <laughs> which of course they will end up becoming. So that's my short answer to your question. Hi, um, thank you for being here. My name is Nikki. Um, uh, I noticed that we're focusing a lot on gender equality, which I think is very important as a woman um, and as a decent human being. But at the same time, as a black woman, I'm sort of wondering why we're not specifically naming race within these SDGs and looking at them. Um, when you think about access to education, when you think about poverty, when you think about access to health care, there are definitely disproportionately black and brown bodies within these spaces. And these are people who will be disproportionately affected by things like climate change. Um, and I certainly have a lot of privilege myself being here at the University of Pennsylvania at the same time as a black student within the environmental studies department. I'm one of two to three. Um, this has been my first opportunity to see a black person speak on sustainability. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering sort of if within these SDGs, the reason that race isn't specifically named is because it's not, racial inequality isn't really as much of an issue worldwide or because we're just afraid to talk about it. Actually, it's mentioned. Mm -hmm. So, uh, under inequality, mm -hmm. uh, the issues of race are there mm -hmm. as part of the targets, mm -hmm. as one of the conditions that must be met. Because we're not just asking you, we're not, we're not just asking you to attain inequality uh, using economic criteria. We're also asking you to do it using race criteria. Mm -hmm. So it's mentioned, and there's one or two other places uh, where it's mentioned. But I think you began to touch on the issue a little earlier when you said, you know, race, um, you know, in America, and I'm not an American, but I've spent a lot of time here. Um, uh, let, me, let, me, let me make it personal. Uh, when I first arrived in America, uh, I, I didn't know I was black. I didn't, I didn't know what that meant, and I didn't know, I thought black was a color. And it came as a rude awakening in, a, in an economics class uh, when the professor asked for a black opinion and he pointed at me. Mm. And I didn't know that he expected me to speak as an African or as a black person because I had never referred to myself 
or seen myself as that because I grew up in Kenya. Everybody's like me, you know, we only saw white people and we didn't even call them white people, we just called them wazungus, which basically means foreigners. Uh, so it's an alien, it was an alien concept to me and it still is for very many people outside the United States where race is a highly politicized, uh, you know, issue. Um, this is a universal agenda that's dealing with all countries in the world. Um, without a doubt, race is important, and, but we have put it in the context of a global agenda. That doesn't take away from the fact that you're not gonna deal with inequality in America or with gender issues or with poverty issues or with issues of access to health, education. You can go down the list without bumping up against issues of race. You're not going to. You're not gonna attain all the, you see, you don't have to call it race everywhere. I just have to give you a target. <laughs> and I'm sorry, you're going to bump up against the, the issue of race. And by the way, in very many ways, right? I mean, you've seen what's happening with this election uh, that you guys are having out here. You know, you're, you're gonna come up with issues of race, but it might be dealing with white poverty as well. And, and their access to certain deliverables that the state's supposed to deliver for them. So, yeah, it is an issue. But it doesn't always mean race equals black. Mm -hmm. It might mean race equals someone who, because of their racial characteristics, are being left out. And that's why one of the slogans that we've been using is that we shall leave no one behind. Mm -hmm. We shall leave no one behind, irrespective of their race, color, creed, gender, sexual preference, da 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 Good question, though. I think we have we time for one, one more question. Well, we have two hands, so we can take them. Okay. I wouldn't want to leave anybody. I'm finally awake. <laughs> Mr. Ambassador, thank you so much for your remarks. My name is Ken Kulak. I teach energy law and climate change here at the law school. And I'm curious whether you could, you spoke about different levels of industrialization looking ahead. And I'm curious whether you could speak a bit to how you addressed, managed through questions around historical responsibility for emissions uh, in the course of crafting the SDGs and, and perhaps in your current work as a special envoy. Um, I tell you, sleepless nights. <laughs> uh, historical responsibility, does everybody know what it is? Does anybody not know what it is? Wow, what bright people. <laughs> Penn is doing a great job. Um, we had, uh, let me characterize it. We have countries that uh, feel that they can switch over very quickly to clean energy and to an industrialized state uh, that is no longer uh, pollutive. And those countries are all those who are, have historical responsibility for putting the greenhouses, gases up there that are creating the current problem we're facing right now. And then you have middle a middle bunch of countries, emerging economies essentially, who are using 20th century technology, brown technologies essentially, 
uh, not race, uh, brown as in uh, technologies um, that are making them competitive as economies. China, Indonesia, India. And they don't see why they should not do that because that's the only way they're going to be competitive. And then you have those countries that are, like Kenya, not even on that grid. They haven't industrialized. They basically are not churning out any greenhouse gases except from a few vehicles. To, to, to make these countries come to the conclusion, though, that climate change was an important uh, issue was not easy. And it was the last, one of the last goals agreed mm -hmm. in this goal set. Mm -hmm. And there was a huge struggle that we will not have climate change because we hadn't had the Paris Agreement then. And everybody was afraid we would upend the Paris Agreement. And I had to take a personal, we as the coaches took a personal responsibility. And we said we refuse to conclude this process without climate change because it was inconceivable to imagine sustainable development goals without climate change. Because climate change is such a fundamental part of delivering on sustainability in our world. So we just simply refused. But if you look at the targets, they are very few. And the cop-out, and it was a cop-out, was that we will put an asterisk and all that will that be agreed in Paris will fall in, in line as soon as it's agreed and will become part of the deliverables of that goal. So the whole Paris Agreement is now part of the Sustainable Development Goals by default. It worked, but that's how we handled it. So you could take another yeah, question? Sure. Okay. Hello. Um, I'm a second year master's student from the Department of City and Regional Planning. And a lot of what you've talked about, especially these, um, you know, slow occurring uh, disasters such as drought and even the larger disasters that are over in a couple of hours take decades of remediation and the reversal of certain agricultural practices and deindustrialization and reindustrialization in a in a form that's more sustainable. So I'm curious in a world where we have so much changing so quickly whether it be governments, political positions, media, you know, it's hard to keep our attention on one thing for longer than 2 weeks. So I'm curious how the United Nations and this framework is really helping to foster investment of money and also just attention on some of these issues that are going to take, you know, decades, if not generations, to fix? That's a brilliant question. Absolutely spot mm -hmm. on. Let me, mm -hmm. let me tell you something. The reason why this goal set has become so crucially important is precisely because of that. It's precisely because we had a, uh, uh, a short attention world mm -hmm. with Quarterly deliverables, the corporate psyche had consumed everybody and everything had to be delivered in the quarter and profits and uh, politics was running on a three to four, five year cycle, you know, and politicians didn't really give a damn anything that was beyond that horizon was somebody else's problem. 
But we came to realize this was hugely damaging. Hugely damaging. That's why we're in the problem that we're in in many, many countries. That's why we're in the problem that we're in collectively in the world. With our habitat, with our ecology, with our biodiversity. I mean, it's horrible. Um, but I think the big upside of, the, of this goal set is that it's here to stay and that every country has to deliver on it. So I don't care. You can change your government. You can change your policies. You can do whatever it is you want to do, but you know what? You are being held accountable for a common goal set that has set ambitious targets over 15 years. That immediately puts the time frame for everything from policy to, to uh, uh, programming to financing on a 50-year time frame. 15-year time frame, sorry. And countries will opt out, but they'll be shamed back. You know? Remember, it is not a legally binding agreement. It's not legally binding. This is morally binding. This is ethically binding. This is persuasive on the basis of you are going to want to live in a community of nations. So you can act like a jerk, but, but sooner or later, you're going to have to look at your friends in the face and maybe not want to be such a jerk after all. So that's the half of the question that you asked. The other half, which is equally important, is related to financing. And you know what's remarkable? After the 2008 crisis, huge amounts of money, private funds essentially, and money in uh, uh, pension funds and so on, parked itself. It was easier for money to be kept in mattresses than to be put in banks, as you know. Interest rate collapsed. Why would you put your money in banks if, you, if you're getting no interest rates? Returns on, on investments collapse, so people just held on to their cash. Once that happens, the economies freeze. Right? Banks couldn't lend and so on and so forth. What this has done is that it has given corporates, mm -hmm. uh, financial markets, uh, bond markets, a framework around which they can begin to say they want to invest. So lo and behold, and I'll recommend your report, it's called the UNEP Inquiry. Google it. It'll pop up right now. Uh, the UNEP inquiry will give you a little window into what I'm, I'm, I'm about to say. All this money that had been sitting around with nowhere to go, didn't have the guts, didn't have the, the policy framework, nor the policy incentives to do so, is beginning to recognize that this goal set, with its targets and indicators, and you always have to look at the targets and indicators. The goal set means nothing. This is just... This is just kindergarten, literally, in colors and in pictures. It's what's beneath it that is master's level stuff. And that's what you guys need to focus on. That stuff is what the financial markets are tying up around. And they're selling themselves, for example, if, we're going, if, if a country is going to attain certain goals and certain targets and certain indicators over the next 15 years, it's going to have to invest in a certain way. If it's going to invest in a certain way, well, if I'm, a, if I'm an investor, I'm going to say, you know, this country is going to have to rejig its investments, right, away from brown industries to greener industries. And to do that, I'm going to look for companies 
that are, there might be startups or whatever that are putting their money in there and I'm going to put my money there. Because for sure they're going to have to go down that track because they've already made a commitment to go down that track. So what are we seeing? Chinese bond markets. I think it went from zero invested in green uh, technologies and green uh, investments. And if you read that report, I think it's talking about 25, 30 billion in a, in a period of months. Months. Oh, it's not just China. UK, Europe, even the United States. And I say even because people think that things aren't happening in that realm. You know, I was just looking at the newspapers today, uh, and one of the big laments of the, of the Financial Times today was that climate change is in trouble because mm -hmm. it hasn't been mentioned once in the debates. Nobody's talking about it. You know, they have more important issues to talk about, I guess. Um, but the corporates, the bond people, are moving. They've seen the future. That's the future. And they're putting their money in the future. And they want to get there before everybody gets in on the act. Because that's how they're going to make their money. Very good questions. Ambassador, I'm going to ask our student leaders to distill the breadth of your insights. It's quite a challenge, but I know that they're up to that task. But before I do so, I want to um, um, to synchronize two quotes, both from you as well as from President John F. Kennedy, when he said, let the word go forth from this time and place. Mm -hmm. And then your quote begins that we cannot get this done without the support of the academy. And as you've said this before, these are inextricably interlinked goals. And if there is one partnership that is critical mm -hmm. to this partnership for the goals is the partnership of academic institutions that can really build that inextricably interlinked hub for the advancement of these goals. So let the go word go forth from here and now that academic institutions are critical to the advancement of the SDGs. Absolutely. And now to our students. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to thank the ambassador again for his uh, timely and uh, very valuable insights that he's delivered today. Uh, we have had a very wide-ranging discussion that has covered the development and the diplomatic process of the Sustainable Development Goals. We've also talked about the priorities for uh, peace building and global security uh, with a particular focus on what the African Union has been doing in, in promoting peace in Africa. And we've also touched on gender equality and the importance of putting women at the heart of the peace building and security process. Um, and we've also looked at the, the impact of climate change and natural disasters to a whole range of countries and the increasing prevalence of weather events that disrupt the development and progress of a number of nations. I think 
we're beginning to see that the sustainable development goals, although they don't have legal effect, they do have teeth in terms of economic incentives, whether that's the capital markets, uh, encouraging certain investors to invest in particular technologies, mm -hmm. or whether it's through the normative and uh, reputational force that these goals have, and they provide an ability to move beyond the short time frame mm -hmm. that elected officials have. Um, the discussion has been quite in-depth. I'm not going to cover uh, everything that's been touched on. But I did want to finish uh, this brief summary by ending on uh, a particular comment or a particular point that the ambassadors raised in previous discussions. Uh, the Sustainable Development Goals seek to end poverty, to protect the planet, and ensure prosperity for all. These are very lofty and uh, ideal sounding goals and they often seem far removed from us as individuals. What can I do to bring prosperity to Haiti or um, other nations struggling? But I, I think the ambassador touched on this about the personal role that we all have to play, whether that's as students or academic or as a institution such as the University of Penn in bringing these goals to life. So that's from small but important actions such as recycling to more wide-ranging actions such as holding our elected officials to account. Um, we can all significantly contribute to the development and the achievement of these important goals. So to bring this section to a close, I would like to again thank the ambassador for his words today and for his remarks. And if you can join me in uh, showing our appreciation. Thank you very much.